0: Hello, hello. Good morning, everyone. My name is Jacob, and today's reading comes from Isaiah. Let's get this a little bit up. Uh, Chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. So you can follow along in your own Bibles, or it says handouts. I don't think there's handouts this week. No handouts this week. So in your own Bibles, or simply listen as the Scriptures are read. Again, that's Isaiah chapter 6, starting with verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. It was in the year King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord. He was sitting on a lofty throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Attending him were mighty seraphim, each having six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two wings, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. They were calling out to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's army. The whole earth is filled with his glory. The voices shook the temple to its foundation, and the entire building was filled with smoke. Then I said, it's all over. I'm doomed, for I am a sinful man. I have filthy lips, and I live among a people with filthy lips. Yet I have seen the king, the Lord of heaven's armies. Then one of the seraphim flew to, him, flew to me, with a burning coal he had taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. He touched my lips with it and said, See, this coal has touched your lips. Now your guilt is removed, and your sins are forgiven. Then I heard the Lord asking, Whom should I send as a messenger to to this people? Who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God. Good morning. It is great to see you all here on this summer Sunday morning. Uh, my name is Matt. It's uh, I'm one of the pastors here at April Commons Church. Um, it's great to be back for us. We were away for a little bit in Missouri, but um, last week we gathered at the Niceins Backyard, which is a really fabulous experience if you were able to join us. So many of you were there. We had so much fun. We ate so much pizza. Um, I'm kind of loving the alternating summer gatherings. Amen. A little bit. Anybody else? Yeah. Good. So one of my favorite things about living in New England is that we're so stinking close to the ocean. We used to live in Missouri, as I've said many times from many sermons, and that's just about as far from the ocean as you can possibly get. There it is, like landlocked in the middle of the United States. But here, the ocean, the real-life ocean is just 30 minutes away, and the ocean is pretty amazing. In 2021, a few years ago, we took our boys out on one of those whale-watching expeditions. Anybody been on a whale-watching expedition? Okay. Um, And we went out a few miles, and sure enough, Right on cue, huge humpback whale slowly emerges from the darkness, exhaling a blast of air from its spouts, its gigantic tail curling up and down with each deep dive. It was amazing. And then something unexpected happened. Dolphins also showed up to the party. And I'm not talking about like a dolphin or two. We saw hundreds and hundreds of dolphins playing in the wake of the ship, swimming laps around the ship, jumping clear out of the water. The guide came over the intercom to say, folks, this is one of the largest pods of dolphins we've ever seen on tour. You are witnessing something incredible. The whole ocean was teeming with these marvelous creatures, big ones, baby ones, eating, frolicking, swimming around. The video that I took of this moment uh, is full of the sounds of people on the ship making these like, amazing exclamations. You know what amazement sounds like? It's like, whoa, wow, whoa, oh. the The very last thing that I say on the video is, this is awesome. And it was. It was awesome. We were all experiencing awe. And we were resorting to sounds like, ooh, and whoa, because we don't really know how to put awe into words. So we resort to these sounds that we make. Even the experts don't know how to explain awe. And yes, there are awe experts. (laughs) One of them is a guy named Dr. Keltner. He is a psychologist at UC Berkeley. He recently published a book summarizing his work on this powerful emotion, the emotion of awe. For a long time, no one really thought you could study awe because it's rare and it's elusive and how do you capture it? But researchers like Keltner have demonstrated that you can measure, you can see, you can study the, the emotion, the experience of awe. Keltner defines awe as the feeling of encountering something vast and mysterious that you don't understand. The feeling of encountering something vast and mysterious that you do not understand. Something like 300 dolphins surrounding your boats, or when you see a total solar eclipse like I did on August 21st, 2017, on that day, the middle of Missouri was actually the place you wanted to be in the United States. The moon crossed directly in front of the sun perfectly blocking its glow, and left a ring of fire in the sky. And for two minutes and 37 seconds, the temperature dropped 10, 15 degrees, and the whole land was covered in darkness. And we were awestruck watching it in the presence of something vast and mysterious. It was exciting, and it was also kind of scary, (laughs) which is one of the things about awe. Vast, mysterious, exciting, and scary at the same time. Keltner and his team, they wanted to understand what produces awe and why do we feel this? Like, What function does awe have in our lives? So he he interviewed thousands of people from 26 countries, conducted experiments, and he arrived at some really fascinating observations about awe. Across cultures, do you know what we are most often in awe of? What are we most often in awe of in our world? It's food, did you say food? (laughs) Nice. Uh, Other people is the most impressive thing to us. When we see someone else do something courageous or sacrificial, universally that is inspiring to us. Nature itself is a really close second in terms of awe, the night sky, the Grand Canyon, the ocean waves, a fiery sunset. This, actually, the beside took this picture this week as they traveled across the country to California. A fiery sunset, a massive tornado, a blast of lightning. These events are so vast, so powerful, and some them so intricate that they can stop us in our tracks. They can amaze us, and they can also terrify us. Another cause of awe is what Kelton called collective effervescence. It's when we're part of a giant crowd of people a sporting event, a protest march, we're dancing at a concert, we're engaged in communal prayer, these things can produce awe in us as we're part of something huge. Also, awe can happen when we're listening to music, when we're seeing visual arts, when we're having an epiphany or a religious experience. These things produce awe. Finally, the last thing that they identified was seeing the birth of life, seeing life emerge, and also being there to witness the eventual end of life, to witness death. These things bring us right to the edge of mystery, and we feel awe. Our souls are built to respond to the power and the beauty and the mystery of this universe. Without awe, we're actually not fully human. And yet, how often are we feeling awe? How often are you overcome by something vast and mysterious? How often does something happen that you're so amazed that you stop whatever you're doing, and you're like, whoa, wow, that was awesome. You know, the world is brimming with awe-inspiring miracles, but so often I'm too busy to notice. I'm too distracted by my responsibilities, too preoccupied by what needs to be done, too desensitized, perhaps, by all the noises and all the lights of our kind of chaotic world. These amazing moments, these amazing people, these amazing things, and yet I'm afraid I'm missing them because I'm sometimes more worried about taking the photo, right, of the thing and experiencing it actually in person, which... I think is alarming to me because the more I've learned about awe over the past few weeks, the more I've grown to see awe, not as a bonus emotion that's like pretty fun to experience a couple times a year, but actually as something fundamental to our well-being, something essential, something transformative, something that shakes us out of our normal and makes us reorient our perspective. And especially as people who enjoy an amazing relationship with our creator God, this awe-producing universe should make us stop and wonder. Maybe some of you are old enough to remember the classic Rich Mullins song, when he rolls up his sleeves, he ain't just putting on the writs. God isn't, right, our God is an awesome God, he reigns from heaven above with wisdom, with power, with love. Well, one line of the song goes like this, I hope that we have not too quickly forgotten that our God is an awesome God. It's a pretty sobering question, I hope that we have not too quickly forgotten that our God is an awesome God. What if God's showing up all around us and we're just not paying attention? Well, in the passage that Jacob just read for us, God showed up in a way that was impossible to miss. For context, Isaiah is a prophet. He is in the southern kingdom of Judah. And in Isaiah 6.1, we read that it was, in the year of, it was in the year that King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord. So in the year that King Uzziah died orients us in time into the history of Israel. So let's review really quick. Israel had long ago been enslaved in Egypt. Then they were rescued by God and sent to the Promised Land, where they were led by judges, right? By judges like Gideon and like Samson and like Deborah. But it was an unsteady, tumultuous time, the time of Ruth. Other nations were growing stronger around Israel. Israel's getting kind of scared. Seeing that all the other nations had kings, Israel begged God to also give them a king. We need a king, God. God relented. God chose King Saul and King David and King Solomon, and at first, all twelve tribes of Israel were united underneath this one king. But after Solomon's son took over, civil war breaks out, and the kingdom splits into two kingdoms: Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And over time, both of these two kingdoms stop following God. They begin to incorporate other religious practices from the other nations into their practices, and God sends prophets over and over again to remind the people to. Bring them back to faithfulness, warning them of the consequences if they don't. But they would not hear this truth from these prophets, and so God left them to the mercy of the four nations that they so desperately wanted to imitate. So that's the very bleak setting of the first five chapters of Isaiah. The nation of Judah is described all throughout the book as a rebellious child, a city marked by unrighteousness, an unfaithful prostitute, a land filled with idols, a blinded people who think way too highly of themselves. They're a vineyard, Isaiah says, that no longer produces any good fruit, a nation that no longer represents God's justice or God's mercy. And that misrepresentation is something that God cannot have from his people. They have forgotten that God is an awesome God. They've become a rotten, spoiled vineyard that could not produce fruit, so they needed to be destroyed. And that's the realization that smacks Isaiah in the face in chapter 6. Isaiah says, I saw the Lord. He was seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. You know, there are very few times in Scripture, one of the lesser known moments in Scripture is when someone says, I saw the Lord. And when it happens, it is literally awe producing. It is a bush that's on fire, it's a cloud on a mountain, it's a pillar of fire leading the people, an encounter with something vast and mysterious beyond human comprehension. So I wonder if we can see this in our mind's eye, Isaiah's vision of God's robe filling the temple that words can't really describe. It's almost like don't move, don't breathe, don't change anything or else this will go away. I think it's interesting that Isaiah's imagination can only rise to the hem, to the edge of God's garment, of God's robe. Otherwise, it's so vastly and completely filled the temple. The vision is amazing, and the vision is terrifying at the same time. We have these heavenly creatures, these seraphim, which might translate to something like beings of fire, with six wings, and they're all circling the throne. And these mighty, incomprehensible creatures were so in awe of God that they covered their faces at the sight of the Lord. In verse 3, they cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's army. Holy, holy, holy. The word holy was a common word in the ancient world. Nations used it to describe their gods, holy. But for most nations, it wasn't a very special word. It simply meant set apart from what is common. So think of it almost like a label. Like these are the things that are divine, and then these are the things that are not. These are the things that are holy. These are the things that are mundane. Holy didn't typically have any moral connotation in the ancient world, except for with Israel. With Israel, holy held a special meaning. It's used to describe God over 800 times in the Old Testament, It distinguishes Yahweh as the only being who was truly other, capital O, other. It didn't just say something about God's essence. It said something about God's character. God was good and pure and right and just and perfect, holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah saw the whole earth filled with God's perfect glory, it says. Glory is the Hebrew word kavod. It means Something heavy, something significant, something costly. If something has kavod, it means it had weight, it had gravity, it had substance to it. To say that the kavod of God filled the whole earth is to say that the whole earth speaks to the power and the significance of God. Everything that exists in the whole universe was created by God. And how should created things respond to the one who created them? With praise and with glory and with honor, covering our faces and singing holy, holy, holy. That's how it should be right? But instead, God's people have been creating, as Isaiah says later in the book, carved images of God that they could put inside of their houses. Instead of marveling at all of creation, they bowed down to things that they made with their physical hands, worshiping and praying to these useless wooden objects, even though the second commandment tells them to never make an idol and never bow down to an object made out of human hands. But as we all know, people like to worship gods that can't really speak. Because gods who cannot speak cannot tell us what to do or tell us how to live. If we worship gods that we create, then we're not worshiping gods, we're just worshiping ourselves. Confronted by the awesome reality of God, Isaiah cannot live under that illusion anymore. The man-made God illusion. He sees the Lord and God's glory fills the earth and the seraphs cry, holy, holy, holy and it shakes the foundations that he stands upon. In that moment, Isaiah is brutally brutally painfully aware of just how far from holy he is and how far from holy God's people are. So seeing God, Isaiah sees this gulf, this chasm open up between him and the Lord, between sinful humans and the holy one. And it leads to only one conclusion. Isaiah knows he's about to die. He's about to be consumed by the brilliant, blazing, white-hot holiness of God. So he says in verse five, "It's all over. I am doomed. For I am a man. For I am a sinful man. I have filthy lips, and I live among a people with filthy lips. And I have seen the Lord." And Exodus tells us that it is impossible to see the Lord and to live. Isaiah came face to face with the mystery and majesty of God, and there's no like. I've got this under control. <laughs> I'm okay. All he could do was quake with awe and wait for the end to come. So I'm going to pause here for a second because I think sometimes like Isaiah, just like Israel, we too quickly forget that our God is an awesome God. We imagine that God is nice, that God exists to serve us, that our faith is about the good feelings we have when we gather together in worship. We see ourselves as basically good people, right? Right? Sure, we mess up every now and then, but who doesn't mess up every now and then? And I sometimes wonder if all over again we've created a little wooden idol version of God, one that can't really speak, can't really ask anything of us, can't really demand anything of us, can't really do much of anything at all. And in that vein, we can see Jesus as our nice friend, as our good buddy who comes along for the ride, telling us what we want to hear, passive and yielding and weak. If that's the way we see God, then we are not seeing God or ourselves clearly at all. We don't just mess up every now and then. We are proud and arrogant and violent and self absorbed. We don't just mess up, we sin. We have an inner twistedness that hurts us and causes us to hurt others and ourselves. We have no more right to stand in God's holy presence than a bale of hay has the right to stand in a blast furnace. It just gets obliterated. If we haven't had an experience of God in that way, we might need to ask ourselves if we're experiencing God at all. Isaiah had that experience. His eyes were clear. And with crystal clear clarity, he didn't even think to ask God for mercy. He knew his existence was incompatible, impossible in the face of the Holy One. So he said, it's over. I'm doomed. And in that moment, after the holy fire and the smoke and the glory Isaiah experienced perhaps the most awesome thing about God, grace, grace. Isaiah should be dead, but he wasn't. The fire did not kill him as it should have. God saved him. Because of God's love, our creator God amazingly found a way to do the impossible. So in verse 7, a burning coal touches Isaiah's lips, and his guilt was removed, and his sins were forgiven. And he was alive in the face of God, more alive than he had ever been before in his life, forever changed by God's grace. And hear this, God did not have to spare Isaiah. God does not have to give us grace. It is an unimaginable, unexpected, and unnecessary wonder of this universe. And Isaiah never got over his wonder of God's grace, and neither should we. Our burning coal is the cross of Christ. God's death, the means by which we have life. If anyone understood this miracle, I think it's Isaiah, right, who would later write that God did not ignore our sin or rebellion. But instead, we've all left God's path to follow our own way, and God laid on him the sin of us all. Instead of burning us from the face of the earth over and over and over again, God, in Jesus, gave his life to save us to make us more alive than we've ever been before in our lives. And every day, each day, we live because of the life that was given to us by this grace of God. And yet, so many days go by, and I struggle to see the wonder of this grace. I fail to be in awe of what God has done. So has the story somehow grown old? Or boring? Have I grown numb to the amazing grace of God? Is Jesus, just an aspect of our lives. A good buddy who has to love us and has to forgive us because, duh, that's his job, right? Like, no. Like, that's not Jesus. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn over all creation. He is the word made flesh and in him is life and the light that he has cannot be overcome by the darkness. He is the alpha and the omega. He is the beginning and the end. His name is above all names and one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord. You know, I was talking to Marcus this week and he mentioned something he heard from one of his seminary professors that was kind of cool and I think really accurate. We sometimes think of God or of Jesus' humanity in the sense that Jesus became like us. He became human just like us. But that's probably actually backwards. Um, Jesus didn't become like us, he actually showed us what humanity is supposed to be. We're actually flawed humans, we're less than what humans are supposed to be. Following him, being made new by Christ, with Christ's spirit dwelling in us, we actually become more human. This is what God's people. Are and have always been called to do, to be better, more accurate echoes of Jesus, so that the world will know about God's amazing grace, which is what awe actually does for us and to us. This is the function of awe in our lives. When we experience something that makes us feel awe, we instinctively want to tell others Whoa, like look at this. Check, did you see that? This is what we see with Isaiah verse 8 when God was looking for someone to go to the people and bear witness to God's holiness and God's grace he asked who will go and Isaiah's immediate response was to be like me here I am I'll go and for the rest of his life he warned people to turn back to God that the fire could destroy them but what God really wanted was to save them whatever remnant would receive it whatever remnant would receive God's grace you know, it's actually interesting, Kelton and his team reached the same conclusions about the purpose of awe. Awe reminds us that we're part of something bigger, that we're not in control, that we're actually not so important ourselves. For example, in one experiment, Keltner's team took undergrads to a museum, and they had them stare up at a 12-foot-tall skeleton of a Tyrannosaurus Rex at UC Berkeley. And they had him stand next to this thing, right underneath it, this imposing, incredible figure, and they felt awe. They could measure it the pulse rates slowed down, the hairs on the back of their necks stood up, the regions of their brain that involved self-representation got quieter, but the regions of their brain that represent curiosity and exploration, they lit up. And then they gave each student a little task. They had to complete an I am statement 20 times. I am something, I am something. Usually people say things like, I'm an athlete, I'm right-handed, I'm brown-eyed, I'm smart, I'm attractive, I'm hungry, or whatever. In other words, people name things that distinguish them, traits that set them apart from other people, accomplishments, preferences, things that make them stand out from the crowd. But after experiencing this 12-foot tall dinosaur standing over them, after experiencing awe, the students listed more collective traits. They said things like, I'm a human. I am one of the students. I'm part of the group. Over and over, experiences of awe produced this kind of transformation in every experiment they ever conducted. People were more generous, more willing to work together, to coordinate their actions, more willing to actually share with others. Encountering God, feeling awe in God's presence, reminds us that we are creatures who get to worship and praise our creator. And awe also moves us towards others with the same kind of grace and compassion that God has given to us. So experiencing awe is really important in our lives. And while it can feel elusive, it doesn't have to feel so elusive. If we stop, if we pause... If we pay attention, we'll see amazing things happening all around us. I want to leave you with two ideas of how you might cultivate more awe in your life. The first one is nature, as we've talked about a bunch of times. Like dolphins, like solar eclipses, like spectacular sunsets, being in nature long enough to notice how amazing it is is one of the most common ways we can experience awe. One of our hopes for the field trip we take next week is that we get out in nature and we get away from our screens, and we get away from the noise, and we get away from the distractions, and we see that the world around us is amazing, that it is an echo of our creative God's heart. And it's not just the big things, like the mountains and the oceans and the sky, it's actually also the very small things, too. For example, every single blade of grass, every single leaf on every single tree has the ability to absorb light from the sun and convert that light those photons into food. Like that's crazy. Like it changes light into food. And the energy stored in those plants provides food for every other single living thing on earth. Bunnies, cows, sharks, tigers, worms, people. All the food that we eat, all of that, the only reason we have any of that is because plants change sunlight into food. That's crazy. It's miraculous and it's happening all around us all the time. So, stopping long enough to just even focus on one leaf, and then to see how that leaf fits into the tree, and how that tree fits into the forest, and how that forest provides home for thousands of animals, and how that ecosystem fits into this larger design. Like all of that helps us enjoy this world and steward it for the sake of the Lord who gave it to us to care for. So, if you haven't signed up for Soul Care Sunday next week, get there. It's going to be sweet. Another way. I think we can experience awe is to pay attention, to pause and to pay attention to Christ, to Jesus. Everything about Jesus is amazing. But this morning, in light of Isaiah's encounter, I want to focus specifically on the amazing grace that Christ has shown us. Like Isaiah, the realization that our guilt is removed from us, that our sins are forgiven, it is one of the most awesome realizations we can have. I think that's why the old hymn "Amazing Grace" has endured through the centuries. It's written by John Newton, published in 1779. Early in life, Newton had been a he'd been involved in the transatlantic slave trade, but after surviving a shipwreck, he gave his life to Jesus. And many years later, reflecting on his blindness, reflecting on his sinfulness, reflecting on his great debt before God, of how unworthy he was of forgiveness, in his journal he wrote this about God's grace. He wrote this about God's grace. Mercy came to us, not only undeserved, but undesired. Our hearts endeavored to shut him out until he overcame us by the power of his grace. Not only undeserved, but undesired. And it was only after his grace overpowered us. To be open our hearts to him. God's grace is amazing. Which is why the first lines of the song have an exclamation point. Amazing grace, exclamation point, which he was criticized for over and over again. But no, he said, amazing grace. Honestly, though, it's actually the second verse that's been captivating me a little bit this week. This is the verse, the second verse, that talks about both the wonderful and the fearful parts of coming face to face with God. With this truly awesome God. It's the verse that highlights how Newton actually had to come to the very end of himself. And there, at the end, he found God's grace waiting for him. It goes like this. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fear relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Our God is an all-consuming, perfect fire of holiness, and in God's holiness burns a perfect love manifest in Christ." to save a wretch like me and like you. May we never get so numb to Jesus, so used to Jesus, so comfortable with Jesus, that we forget just how awesome and how amazing his grace really is. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, you have overcome us by your grace. We did not desire, we did not deserve, and yet you came to us. And the burning coal, the burning fire of your passion does not consume us as it should but you take that upon yourself and you give us life instead Lord may we never grow numb may we never grow used to you, so comfortable that we cannot see cannot appreciate cannot stand in awe of who you are and what you've done and not only that Lord may us may we represent that kind of same amazing grace to this world around us a grace that's so astounding so confusing and so confounding that people step back and say whoa who are those people what are they about why are they the way they are? And maybe Jesus points straight to you and says, it's because of you, Christ, It's because of you. It's so in your powerful name we pray, it's because of your grace. Amen.